You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, China begins to lift the country's strict COVID measures. But what impact will that have on the 1.4 billion people who live there? Also ahead on today's programme... France and the United States will meet the future just as we always have. Confident in our shared capacity. Sustained by the strength of our shared values and undaunted by any challenge that lies ahead. Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron agree to face future challenges together. We'll ask what that means for the war in Ukraine. Plus, Monocle's Nick Manise unpacks the design news in the forecast. And then Andrew Muller gives us his take on the week's other stories. We learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. China has begun a further easing of COVID-19 measures following widespread demonstrations across the country. The policy shift, which will see the easing of testing and some quarantine rules, is a relief to many. But will the world's most populous nation be able to cope as cases start to rise? Steve Tsang is the director of the China Institute, SOAS, at the University of London. Uh, And he joins me now. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Steve. Which rules are being relaxed? Well, there are going to be some lifting of restrictions in terms of quarantine. So there will be more scope for people to move around more uh, freely. But it is not not yet a clear, straightforward, universal application of easing. And the zero COVID policy has not yet formally been abandoned yet. Is this a direct result of the protests? Well, Xi Jinping will tell you, the Chinese government will tell you that it is not they will tell you that it is because the Chinese government has decided things have moved on and they will change. Reality is that it is a response to the protests that happened over the weekend, that those protests caught Xi Jinping and the Chinese government by surprise. They were worried that it started with people calling for Xi Jinping and the Communist Party to step down. Therefore, they are reacting. And do you think that this makes Xi seem weak? I mean, will demonstrators press their advantage and agitate for further change? They've seen that it works. Well, the Chinese government is trying very hard to make sure that people do not get the idea that Xi Jinping appears to be weak. And that's why they wait until after they had, in a sense, restored order, in quotation marks, on Monday before they announced the easing of policies in the first instance in Guangzhou and then more generally. What will the relaxation of these measures mean for COVID death rates in China? The likelihood is that the relaxation, uh, if it is being sustained, will increase the number of people being taken into intensive care and people dying. And given the Chinese population base, and the level of vaccination, uh, the chance is that quite a lot of people will end up dying. It will become another challenge for the 
government in Beijing. Well, let's just pick up that that subject of vaccinations. I wonder firstly why there's been a low take-up and also how close China is to developing its own mRNA vaccine, which is meant to be much more effective than the, the one already in use. There is a fair bit of vaccine scepticism in China, and that's mainly because uh, on previous occasions when the Chinese government uh, asked people to take vaccinations, those vaccines that were being used were not very reliable and in some cases had very significant problems. So there was a kind of long-standing vaccine scepticism in China, particularly among the older generations who remember them. Uh, In terms of the Chinese mRNA vaccines, they have been giving it top priority for about a year now. They are testing them in Indonesia, they have passed the stage two test. They have not yet passed through the stage three test, and therefore they are not yet ready to be licensed for use. And as China comes out of lockdown, is that likely to infect, uh, affect infection rates in the rest of the world? Um, probably, but I think the real issue here is in terms of the uh, stress on the health services in China and whether they could even manage to cope with the increased numbers of people needing hospitalizations and dealing with the deaths. The wider world infection rate, I think it, may, it will push the absolute number higher, but I don't think it's going to change the way how the rest of the world deals with the uh, virus. Mm. Steve, I see that the Chinese Grand Prix has just been cancelled. Is that COVID related? Um, I don't know. Probably at the moment, yes. Um, It is a long-standing zero-COVID policy with a lot of restrictions, and some of them are now beginning to be lifted. So a lot of the other policies may take a bit of time before they can adjust to it. Mm. And at at the moment, there is really not enough clarity because the zero-COVID policy as such has not yet been uh, abandoned. So there will be a fair bit of confusion as to what should be done and what should not be done and when China will be opened and by how, uh, to what extent China will be open. And Steve, just before you go, of course, we know that the World Cup is on at the moment, but Chinese people are restricted in what they're seeing of the audiences, I understand. Yes, the party state is very careful in allowing people to see what the party state would like them to see. So the scenes of uh, audience for the World Club not wearing face masks was something that proved a bit of a problem for the Chinese Communist Party. And that's why they really don't want to show uh, fans cheering without face masks on for podcasts in China. Steve, thank you very much indeed. That was Steve Tsang. Now, here's Monocle 24's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Ukraine's government has said that 13,000 members of the country's armed forces have been killed since the start of Russia's invasion in February. It is rare for Kyiv to comment on the number of casualties and the figure has not been confirmed by the country's military. The United States and its Asian allies have imposed sanctions on three senior North Korean officials. It follows Pyongyang's decision to launch a record number of ballistic missiles. The Hermit Nation has also tested several intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
And South Africa's opposition Democratic Alliance Party is calling for an early election as President Cyril Ramaphosa grapples with a corruption scandal. Ramaphosa has been accused of covering up a multi-million dollar theft from his farm in 2020. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Sophie. Now, yesterday, President Joe Biden and his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, met at the White House. The two leaders renewed their commitment to transatlantic alliances in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and pledged to present an overture to Vladimir Putin should the Russian leader show interest in ending the war. Another country which is also playing a big role in the conflict is Turkey, which has been able to pivot between Russia and the West. Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University and uh, is joining me on the line now. Thanks, as always, Jenny. How significant was the meeting between Macron and Biden as far as the war in Ukraine goes? Mm. Well, it really does emphasise the unity, I think, between these two countries. And France has been criticised for not providing as much uh, military support for Ukraine as it might have done. It's been criticised for Macron being too close to Putin, particularly in the in the weeks leading up to the February 24th invasion. So this is really an opportunity for Macron and for France to demonstrate that they are united you know, in support of Ukraine uh, today, together with the United States. Uh, and so it's a real important kind of statement of, of unity and intention of purpose for the future. Mm. And is this war making us see traditional alliances come to the fore? Um, yes, I mean, certainly the US has cemented its uh, European allied relationships, particularly with 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 Britain, but also with France. Um, and so you, you see a return to some of the, the kinds of alliances that were perhaps stronger and more enduring during the Cold War. Uh, now that this latest crisis has come forward, uh, it's really given the different governments an opportunity to, to reevaluate their traditional relationships and, and reaffirm them. And of course, Turkey is also a big power broker in this. Yes, Turkey's position is just fascinating because Turkey has been able to uh, sort of stand uh, on on a line and, and walk the, this line between supporting Ukraine and supporting Russia. So sometimes its actions are clearly in support of Ukraine. For example, when Russia recently announced it was going to pull out of the grain deal, Turkey stepped in and ensured that Ukrainian ships could get safe passage you know, past the, the, the Russian blockade and, and that they would get, be able to get the grain out nevertheless. Uh, Turkey's also supplied Ukraine with some very valuable military equipment, uh, especially some drones, which have really been credited with uh, helping Ukraine, uh, you know, be, provide a, a much stronger uh, sort of attack against uh, Russian forces. But at the same time, uh, Turkey does not participate in sanctions against Russia. Uh, Turkey uh, has demonstrated that it's willing to uh, work with Russia, uh, both in trade terms, but also just generally diplomatically as it's come out in support of Russia in, in various ways. And also, of course, it has been uh, the major uh, factor which has stopped uh, the quick succession of um, Finland and Sweden into NATO. Mm. So, you know, Turkey and Erdogan have really playing, have been, really been playing both sides against the middle in this conflict. Now, Ukraine obviously needs Western support. I wonder if there's any resentment, given that Kyiv is not likely to make any concessions to Russia at all, and the West would perhaps like to see more of a compromising attitude. Well, it's a difficult situation, I think, that both Ukraine and its Western supporters find themselves in because everyone wants to see an early end to the war. But the question is, on what terms and what are the Ukrainians willing to uh, agree to and settle for? 
And of course, the more we have learned about what has happened in the areas that Russia has occupied in terms of what's happened to civilians, and, and the more that we see Russia's willingness to attack civilian targets, especially electricity, power plants, um, you know, energy, water, basic utilities and, and infrastructure, the more firm the Ukrainians have been in their determination to totally resist Russia and to really push the Russians totally out of, of any Ukrainian territory. So this makes it difficult, I think, for Ukraine's Western supporters to argue that Ukraine should nevertheless come to the table and make lots of compromises. So it is a difficult situation. No one wants the war to continue longer than it has to. But the key questions are, how will it end and under whose terms and under what conditions? And who is Russia willing to listen to? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, so it is definitely wanting to listen to Turkey. That's been clear. And you know, Putin and Erdogan seem to get along on a personal level. They seem to be able to communicate to each other. They seem to understand each other. They're both these strong, um, you know, strong man leader figures, and they seem to understand how they each operate within the diplomatic space. Uh, but of course, you know, Russia listens to Iran. Russia listens uh, to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been a an important um, intermediary in terms of getting POW exchanged and released. So there are a number of states in the international community that can act in this uh, liaison, sort of intermediary role between Russia and Ukraine or Russia and Western countries. Uh, it's just a matter of, of maneuvering everybody into the right positions and whether, of course, those states are willing to play those roles at particular moments. And what off-ramps could they offer Putin and would he take them? Well, this is the thing. Putin just has not shown himself to be at all interested in off-ramps of other people's makings. So what Putin and, and others in the Kremlin have uh, been willing to offer in recent and in more distant times has been very much, let's freeze the conflict where it is. Let's have a ceasefire. Let's come to some kind of an agreement which recognizes uh, existing situations on the ground, uh, and then we'll we'll push the the bigger decisions about ultimate settlements down the road. And this is, of course, exactly what happened in terms of the the conflict in the Donbass since nineteen, you know, since twenty fourteen rather. Um, that has been effectively a frozen, although still hot, conflict. And so that would be to, to Russia's advantage to have some sort of a ceasefire and and try and fix the the gains that it has made into place. Of course, Ukraine definitely doesn't want to agree to that. Uh, but Russia hasn't really shown an interest in taking steps to actually compromise with Ukraine to say, well, we'll withdraw our forces from here or we'll give you this instead. Um, so I don't think Putin's terribly interested in compromise. Mm. And, and just briefly, Ukraine keeps stressing how vital Western support is. Is Europe doing all it can to help? Well, this is always an open-ended question. You know, there's always more that can be done in terms of economic support, in terms of military support, in terms of training, diplomatic support, pressure on Russia and so on. So it's, you know, it's, it's very much a question of how long is a piece of string. Of course, Europe could do more. Of course, Ukraine supporters could do more. It's a question of how much are they able to justify to their own populations? How much are they able politically to offer at any particular given point? And also bearing in mind really very, you know, well, well-founded concerns about moving too far too fast in support of Ukraine and tipping Russia potentially over the edge into really extreme behavior. So, you know, no one wants to trigger a nuclear war. And and I think this is what is the thing at the back of the, the minds of many in, in Western capitals, uh, not wanting to uh, behave in such a way that's, that's too provocative to Putin, if you like. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That was Jenny Mathers, and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. 
now we're going to delve into the brand new edition of The Forecast Now, Monocle's latest publication. And our design editor, Nick Manise, joins me in the studio. The headline, what does it say there? It says, The Future Fixers. And there's a nice little illustration of a man in a... He's got tools. Steph, Steph's, who's obviously helping produce the show, and I were talking about it. It's very, it's very cute illustration, isn't it? I like it, it's, with his little screwdriver and everything. And Spanner, I don't know if you can actually fix the future with uh, an adjustable wrench, but, you, you know... He's certainly going to have a goal. I think that's. I think that's what the illustration is getting at. I think we all need an adjustable wrench. Um, it's orange. Would you call that orange? Yeah, I think so. Uh, or yeah, it's an orange. I, I absolutely call that an orange. I mean, I, I, obviously, covering design this should be my realm, but usually on graphics, I often defer to Rich, our, our art director. Yeah, maybe peach, peach, uh, peachy color. Certainly optimistic, and I mean that, that's what this publication's all about. It's about looking forward to to the next year, what what twenty twenty three holds for us, and hopefully, uh, you know, finding some people doing some amazing work and, and setting new agendas and, and starting new projects. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those people, or peoples, uh, an architecture school in Arizona. Yeah, so the uh, it's it's the School of Architecture. It's very, you type that in and, and it's very difficult to find in Google, but it's the School of Architecture. It was founded by Frank Lloyd Wright in the 1930s. Uh, so it's got this, this amazing legacy associated or attached to this amazing architect. And uh, we're basically looking at the fact that it's now separated from the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. It did that last year uh, and is sort of venturing out into the world on its own. It's on a new campus because it's no longer on the Frank Lloyd Wright campus. There's a whole dispute around that. That's unpacked in the story, but that's not what makes this significant. What 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 I like about this school and, and why we've decided to report on it is it really takes a different approach to architectural education. And it, again, inspired by that Frank Lloyd Wright heritage, which is all about learning by doing, the students here actually get out on site and build things and learn how to to make things. Whereas uh, I think a lot of architecture schools and a lot of educations, it, you end up just drawing a lot of things, detailing things up in the computer and not actually getting your hands physically dirty, which ultimately translates to the fact that when you graduate, you might not know how to actually build things. You can sure you can you can draw things up in, in computer, you know, 3D forms, but the reality is it's it's very different once you're out there dealing with the actual environment, dealing with the actual people building it. So that's that's why we've picked this, I guess, as, as a sort of benchmark for an architectural education. If if somebody's looking at revisiting their curriculum, the School of Architecture in Arizona is certainly a good place to start. And you've also found some furniture companies that are breaking the mould. Yeah, so we we've picked five furniture firms that really are sort of doing things differently. I mean, the way we've been making furniture or the way that we've been delivering the furniture has been pretty much more or less the same for the past half century. It's like, you know, a big factory, unless unless you're buying a really bespoke piece, it mostly comes from a big factory which just churns one thing out. If, if you're getting higher end, uh, you know, you might have to have a 12 to 16 week lead time for the furniture to actually arrive at your house. Or if you're going for the low end, it's probably IKEA. Uh, and, you know, whilst there's, there's you know, plenty of good things about IKEA, I think, I think it, you know, it, it can make design readily accessible to people. The reality is a lot of that furniture doesn't stand up to the test of time. You, you disassemble it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever pulled an IKEA bookcase apart, but you certainly can't get it back together easily. Or if you have, it, it's all warped and broken. So some some of the the furniture firms, the five furniture firms we're looking at, really uh, are, are looking to break this this model. Uh, and one of them, actually, off the off the back of that IKEA um, comment, is is probably a good example. It's Reframed. They're a Danish furniture company uh, specialising in beds, and the whole idea is that these can be flat packed. They're made out of aluminium extrusions, but you can readily disassemble it and reassemble it 
in minutes uh, because it, it's got this clever little, uh, I don't know, inbuilt screw, I guess. So you don't actually use any screws. You just simply click it into place. Uh, and yeah, you can, you can take it with you as you move homes. Uh, but it's also, you know, the al- aluminium makes it look incredibly permanent. It doesn't look cheap. It, it looks like a really sophisticated decision and it is a sophisticated design decision. So we've got Firms like that, we've also got Part and Whole in, in Canada who are making repairable furniture um, in terms of it's, – it's modular. So you buy a sofa. I don't know, uh, Georgina, I'm assuming you might have spilled a glass of wine on a Friday night on the sofa. Is that – not that – actually, that sounds terrible. It sounds like <laughs> – so I've got a drinking problem. Can I, think I that's tell what you, I'm I don't at. have a sofa. I have, I have a beautiful handmade Swahili David. Oh, so. you've done very well for yourself. But I don't know. Maybe – okay, I'm going back to me. Look, the other week I spilled a, a glass of wine on the sofa. Uh, and, you know, we have, to, we have to replace the cushion. And that's difficult to do because the, the, the firm we bought it off aren't selling one-off cushions. I mean, we're going through a, a whole back and forth. But the whole idea with part and whole is that you can you can simply quite easily replace that cushion, but you can also replace the frame if something gets broken, if somebody perhaps hefty sits on the arm and, and makes it sink. Are you, you can, referring you can, back to me No, again not referring to you. Not, did not have you in mind. Wow, uh, okay. This is really going badly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really digging holes for myself. What else can we talk about here? Something that's completely different. Uh, what about 1400, an Austrian firm? Uh, who uh, basically, uh, they've, they've got their own forest where they harvest their timber from. Surely I can't put my foot in my mouth with this one. I think I think that one's pretty straightforward. Um, but they, they yeah, they've, they've essentially got their own forest where they harvest their timber from and, and then build... Um, build their furniture using that timber. So it means that they can, you know, there's obviously benefits there in terms of, you know, there are supply chain issues at the moment, obviously everything's stretched, but these this firm has complete control over their supply chain. So again, it's sort of coming back to people that are really looking at, at the furniture delivery model and, and trying to do it differently and better. Absolutely. Uh, that sounds absolutely wonderful, Nick. And I would highly recommend this peach-coloured <laughs> latest edition. Do you want me to leave this one with you? This could be complimentary. Is that, uh, can I somehow make up some ground on what I've done in this conversation. I don't know. You're suggesting I feel like I need to be fixed, though, you know, with all the... I I can't win today, clearly, Georgina. I really can't win. Yeah, bye, Nick. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) That was our design editor, Nick Manise. And the forecast is on all good newsstands now. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere, a truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design, and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Finally on today's programme, we join Andrew Muller for his irreverent take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that whatever other reservations one may reasonably entertain about the 2022 World Cup, it absolutely was not going to let us down on the flag mishap. 
The flag mishap is a highlight of any World Cup or indeed any international sporting tournament. It occurs when someone somewhere runs up the wrong competitor's flag at a significant moment, occasioning indignant communiques, summonings of ambassadors, furious headlines and other such hilarity. Classics of the genre include South Korea's flag instead of North Korea's before a women's football match at the 2012 Olympics in London. Niger's flag instead of Nigeria's at the opening ceremony of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. Australia's and New Zealand's the wrong way around at the medal ceremony for the women's canoe slalom at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Oh no. And one for the real flag mishap heads. A Chinese flag with the stars slightly off kilter. Also at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Actually, we learn, reflecting on the above, that Brazil seems prone to particular lackadaisy on this front. Get it together, Brazil. Anyway, we learned that the contribution of Qatar 2022 to this canon of gaiety would be associated with the crucial Group B game involving the United States and Iran, two countries which one might say have something of a history if one was swinging for some sort of award for understatement. <coughs> We learned that in social media postings foreshadowing the match between the Great Satan and the Axis of Evil, whoever handles these things for the United States Soccer Federation had used images of Iran's flag without the stylized tulip motif added after the 1979 revolution, which unloaded the Shah and established the Islamic Republic. <laughs> We learned of the depth of the Ayatollah's unamusement from the following statement by Iran's state news agency, as will be read with due solemnity by Monocle 24's clerical dudgeon desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In an unprofessional act, the Instagram page of the US Football Federation removed the symbol from the Iranian flag. The Iran Football Federation sent an email to FIFA to demand it issue a serious warning. Not just any old warning. A serious warning. We learned by way of explanation from the US soccer authorities that they'd plucked the logo from the flag as an arguably somewhat chaotic gesture of support for those Iranian women still protesting in large numbers at considerable risk for the right to decide for themselves whether or not they feel like wearing a scarf. But we learned that they had not first informed the United States actual manager Greg Berhalter, who rather disappointingly for those of us who enjoy this sort of thing and were looking forward to Iran retaliating by taking the stars or the stripes off the stars and stripes or whatever apologized sort of we had no idea about what u.s soccer put out the staff the players had no idea we learned however that this saga had not ceased delighting us because after this mckinney saw the run of tests and there he is and Pulisic's in there The United States make their move in Group B. There was this. 
which we learned was just one of a plethora of online clips claiming to record Iranians in Iran celebrating the defeat of Iran's football team by the United Actual States, an occurrence which defies simile, being by any measure weirder than Barcelona fans rejoicing in a belting by Real Madrid, Celtic fans enraptured at a loss of the old firm derby at home to Rangers, or indeed North Korea being absolutely delighted at seeing South Korea's flag hoisted on their pole. Do you see how meticulously stitched together these monologues are? Or perhaps we should say how meticulously stitched together these monologues usually are, as we've had our best people on it all morning and cannot find a seamless segue from football flags, protests, etc. to French bread. So probably what we're going to need here is that agonising gear change sound effect fading into that silly French accordion music we seem to end up using fairly frequently. Before we learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. We learned that alongside such worthy endeavours as, and these are actual examples, Belgian horseback shrimp fishing, Belarusian tree-born beekeeping, Spanish human castle building, Vanuatuan sand drawing, Bosnian lawn mowing, Mongolian camel coaxing et al, UNESCO has now ennobled the French baguette. We learned that President Emmanuel Macron was among those French delighted by this recognition of their unwieldy long loafs, brandishing one gloatingly during his current visit to Washington. Dans ces quelques centimètres de savoir-faire passés de main en main, il y a, il y a exactement l'esprit du savoir-faire français. And we learned that President Macron was not done there, as he tweeted exultantly as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's Gallic Vindication Desk Chief, Laura Kramer, whose Romanian accent is the closest thing we have in the building today, get past it. We had been fighting for years with bakers and the world of gastronomy for its recognition. The baguette is now UNESCO Intangible Heritage. <coughs> so we learned that for France, this brings an end to decades of pain. Pain being French for bread, right? <coughs> Please yourselves. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much, Andrew. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time and we'll be live at our Christmas market in Zurich across the weekend here at Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>